And I mentioned before that this is not only for leaders to understand. It is for the congregation to know. Which is why the book of Deuteronomy is such a brilliant book for the congregation. And when it talks about judges, when you appoint judges so that the people know, A, what sorts of judges to appoint, and B, when they're appointed, the people hold them accountable for how they're doing. And so this is uh, a part of that picture. What is the role of leaders in the presence of the Lord? Well, I guess the question is answered if you recognize our definition, our theme statement. True worship involves reverential human acts of submission and homage before the divine sovereign in response to his gracious revelation of himself and in accordance with his will. Well, that tells me what my role is. Get out of the way. Be sure people meet God in worship. Well, let's look at how this was handled, first of all in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament. Of course, in the Old Testament, we have different stages of worship. We've got family worship. In the patriarchs' homes, you don't have people coming from all over the country to worship. It's Abraham and his family, or it's Jacob and his family. And this is a patricentric world in which a, a home is by definition called the house of the father, where he is the leader of the home, and that means the leader in worship. In the book, I have a discussion of this. And if you want to if you think immediately that this means while well, having devotions with a, with a family regularly and you want to find biblical proof for that view, you won't find it. Can you find any hint of family devotions in the Bible? There's very little, actually. How do leaders in the home, the father in the home, mother in a home, how do we lead our family in worship? It's by what kind of people we are. How do I fulfill my role as husband and father? That's worship. And if that ain't right, no matter what kind of games you play at the head of the day or at the end of the day, it won't matter because it's really life as worship. The role of the king in Israel's worship. Well, this is interesting. Um, do, uh, we, we will come back to this, uh, but let me take you, to, take you to Deuteronomy 17. My colleague Doug Moe says, for any given topic, Block's going to take us to Deuteronomy. Probably so. Deuteronomy is to the... Old Testament, what Romans is to the New. It's actually the opposite. Romans is to the New Testament, what Deuteronomy is to the Old. It's the most systematic theological presentation of the gospel and how this expresses itself in life. So, 
Deuteronomy 17, when you enter the land the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and you say, I'd like a king, like the nations. Go ahead, get yourself a king. Just be sure he's one from your own countrymen, not a foreigner, and he is the one whom the Lord chooses. Oh, that's very important. Leaders are chosen by God. But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor multiply wives for himself, nor multiply silver and gold for himself. Did you see that? In Hebrew, it's a little, little two-letter word, L-W, lo, for himself, for himself, for himself. Unfortunately, there are lots of leaders who fall down on this one. And very quickly, they assume that the church exists for the leader. And your leadership role becomes a way of self-advancement, self-aggrandizement. My agenda becomes it. Watch out. That's the Canaanite way of doing things. But look at what he's doing. Now, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write... What's next? Verse 18. For himself a copy of this Torah in the presence of the priest. He does not write a copy of the Torah for the people. It's for himself. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, that he may obey that he may sit long on his throne. Did you see? That's that old formula, isn't it? Read, that they may hear, that they may learn, that they may fear, that they may obey, that they may live. What's the king's task? I mean, in the ancient world, kings had three big jobs. One, to lead in battle against foreign enemies. Give us a king like the nations. The Israelites come to Samuel and say, the Philistines are a problem. Let's change the Constitution. We'll, get, we'll solve the... Give, uh, lead in battle. Two, to administer justice, which means leading the people in dealing with internal strife. See to it that that happens. doesn't mean he judges every case, but it means he sees to it that there is admin, justice is admitted. And third, build temples which is to say, see to it that God is not angry. Three big jobs. Stave off the fury of the enemy, stave off the fury of the citizen, stave off the fury of God. That's what kings do. So when David says, look, there's something wrong with this picture. I dwell in a nice palace, but God lives in a pup tent. I'd like to build him a house. That's perfectly within their role. That's what kings do. They build temples for the gods. But God says, not so quickly, let me build you a house. And then he gives him the promise of the eternal covenant. But notice, this king's job is not about building houses or beating the enemy. What's his job? That he may learn to fear the Lord as God by carefully observing all his words. If you don't obey, you don't fear. 
of this Torah, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, that he may not turn aside from the command to the right or to the left, so that his sons may continue long in his kingdom. Uh, first time I was in Russia, I was there for eight weeks teaching a course. Actually, I think I taught two courses in those eight weeks. About two weeks in, the director of this new, brand new seminary asked if I would give the students a lecture on biblical leadership. Because the problem in Russia at the time was that you appoint these people to be leaders of churches, and very quickly they become acting like little czars. It's a problem. And unfortunately, it's not a problem only there. It's a problem here. And all of a sudden, it's all about the pastor. It's all about the worship minister. It's all about the leader. No, it's not. According to this text, the leader reads the word for himself that the leader may learn to fear, to walk in his ways, to serve the Lord, and to serve the people. One task is supreme, embodying covenant righteousness that is expected of all the people. So that when the people look at their leader, they say, my, what a talented preacher, what a talented musician, whatever. No, it's not. It's so that when the people look at the leader, they say, I want to be like Mike. He's the ideal with his life so that we embody the message long before we proclaim it. Unfortunately, some of us who lead, when we read the Scriptures, our first question is, what's there in this text for my people? And so we develop what I call a homiletical hermeneutic. We're always thinking of the sermon for the other people. It's a wrong move. That's not the first question we ask. I, as leader, should always be asking, what's there in this passage for me? So that when I stand in front of the people, they see not only the eloquent proclamation, but they see that the proclamation comes out of a life of embodiment. This is where Ezra is such an important paradigm. Ezra set his heart to study, to apply, and to teach. And it has to be in that order. If you apply before you've studied, well, who, who establishes your ethic? If you teach before you've studied, what's the problem? You might teach heresy. If you teach before you've applied, what's the problem? Hypocrisy? Lack of integrity, disingenuity, whatever. The king is to be the model citizen. And I think this is the sense in which Jesus fulfills the role of this king. Jesus says, I came not to destroy the law or the prophets, but to fulfill, which means not just to be that to which everything points, but it is the perfect embodiment of royal Davidic rule. Jesus is that. This is what we are called. Let this mind be in you, 
which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he emptied himself and died the death of a criminal for us. That's leadership at its absolute best. Let's talk about the Levites in leadership. To understand the role of Levites in leadership, we have to understand gradations of holiness. And now I've got these circles, uh, you know, a few charts, a few slides down uh, to put on the wall. According, you know, we have this sense that in, 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 in Old Testament times, you had a sacred place, sacred times, and sacred people. Now that we're in the New Testament, everything is sacred. Well, I've got news for you. Everything was sacred there too, at least the ideal, the ideal. The whole world is God's. God made it, therefore it's holy. It is sacred space. The world is holy, but within that world, God has chosen a sacred people, the Israelites. You, you remember the medallion? We'll come back to the, the high priest on his medallion. He has holy to the Lord. Again, it's interesting. Deuteronomy says nothing about the high priest. But it inscribes the people with this holy to the Lord. Chapter 14, Banim Atem, sons you are to the Lord your God. He has chosen you from all the peoples of the earth to be his holy people. Holy to the Lord. That's the inscription. His special treasure. All Israel is holy. The holy people. Tomorrow we'll talk about in a holy land, doing holy business. So you've got the Israelites. Within Israel, there was the Levitical tribe set apart for sacred duty. That's holy, sanctified. Then within the Levites, there, is the, there are the Zedekites, the special line. And within the Zedekites, there is the high priest. These are gradations of sanctity. It doesn't mean that only the high priest is holy. It means that the high priest is a symbol of the sanctity of everything. And we need to have this guy in our midst to remind us that we have been called with a holy calling, all of us. And his role is to help the big outer circles do their holy job. How did the Levites do this? I have a theory uh, about Levitical towns. You call them Levitical cities. The problem with that is when we think of city, we think of a big place like Kansas City. When you think of city in, 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 in the Bible, don't think of a big place because the temple is called the city of God. Well, who lives there? Only God, not a million people. A city in the Bible is by definition usually a place with walls. That's a city. 
The difference between a town and a city is not one has 10,000 people and one has 1,000. It is the town or, or the city is a town with walls to protect it. An unwalled place is called a village. So I, I use the word Levitical towns rather than Levitical cities because, because we, uh, uh, where are we? Because we, we misinterpret cities, Levitical cities. They're not ur huge urban centers. They are special walls. In uh, Leviticus and Joshua, they set aside 48 towns for the Levites. What was their function? My guess is that the Levites were the pastors. It's almost like, a, like the uh, you know, in Roman Catholic or Anglican tradition where you've got the central cathedral and then you've got the outlying parishes and whatever else. So what happens is we've got Jerusalem at the center where everybody comes for national festivals. And three times a year people are required to come to Jerusalem. But you know that you can't maintain people's faith by having everybody come three times a year. Life happens in the villages and at home. How are you going to foster fidelity in the villages between the festivals? And I think that's why these Levitical towns is a brilliant concept. What this does, it sees to it that in all of these Levitical towns, you've got Levitical priests doing their pastoral ministry, working out of their bases in the towns and going then to the villages. These don't, these don't have walls or they're, they're in the outline. In this way, pastoral ministry happens for everybody. And the Levite's job is to embody righteousness, to teach Torah, to lead people in all things of piety. You know, we tend to think that worship happened only in Jerusalem. I've got news for you. When people are born, babies are born, you want to celebrate. Who's going to lead that? And you do that in the family, you do that in the community. When people die, who's going to take care of the people? You need somebody there. When people get married, in, in the Scripture, when your house has leprosy, somebody has to come and purify the house and rededicate it so that you can move back in. Who's going to do that? Life happens where we live. These Levitical priests were supposed to be out there teaching Torah, embodying Torah, doing their pastoral ministry in everyday life. This is my theory, and, uh, but let's go to the high priest. Exodus 28. Bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's son, Nadav and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother. And this is the interesting thing, the next verse, the last words. For glory and beauty. Why? Now we have to, we'll talk about this tomorrow. What's the temple in the ancient world? Who lives in the temple? 
God does. God does. The temple in the, old, in the old world was not primarily a place where people gather. The temple was a place where God lives. It's a palace. It's a royal palace, which is why everything had to scream, glory! And that's why all the purples and the golds and the silvers and the red, this is glory. It's a building fit for the king the heavenly king. Who's the priest? He's the prime minister of the heavenly king. And everything about the priest was to scream glory. Not the glory of the priest. Holy to the Lord. So that in this place, Everything promotes reverence and awe. Everything. Well, how does that work out? Here's a picture of the priest. It's an artistic rendering. We don't have a photograph. I wish we did. But when I look at that, I say, wow. Look at all the gemstones. Actually, these represent the people, which tells you what God thinks about the people. They're his jewels. When he cometh, when he cometh to make up his jewels, all his jewels, precious jewels, his loved and his own. Like the stars of the morning, his bright crown adorning. They shall shine in their beauty, bright gems for his crown. These are gemstones representing the 12 tribes. That's what the Hebrew has a word. You are his treasured possession. That's a gemstone. We are his crown jewels celebrating. But, um, yeah, this thing is, I'm pressing buttons inadvertently here. Uh, but everything about this guy screams glory so that when he comes out among the people, people say, wow. Not about the priest, but it's about the one whom he represents. Uh, what else can you? Well, uh, this is simply... The next picture is simply a picture of the gemstones and how even Israel's, the way they were camped, these jewels were all arranged like they were on the, the breastpiece. How have people taken this tradition? We've applied it differently. If you bring the next few slides, I'm going to go, be going through these very quickly. Well, if that's what the Israelite priest is, how is this what we should be doing? I mean, that's about 50 pounds of garment on that guy. It's very heavy and very hot. So we've got all sorts of these Syriac, you know, Eastern Orthodox. Now we come to Roman Catholic vestments. Oh, uh, that magnificent? But look at this. Here's our, our present pope, and this is what people are saying. Isn't it wonderful? He has shed those garments of ostentation. 
because in our understanding, the history of the Roman Catholic Church is such a colored history. I was in Italy for the celebration of that Torah thing. In Italy, people have a very, very negative view of the church because of the history of corruption and ostentation and all the rest of it. And of course, it's done in the name of, well, yeah, we're the holy ones. We've got to reflect the glory of God. So you can see how anything can become an idol. Anything can become an idol. In 1 Kings 18, the text tells us that Hezekiah destroyed the bronze serpent. Remember? That they kept in the, in the temple as a memorial to that event way back there in Numbers where God told Moses to make the serpent. Everybody who looks up at the serpent lives. Hezekiah destroyed that thing. Why? It had become an idol. A good thing is twisted all out of shape. In the New Testament, you've got the love feast. In Corinthians, Paul says, get rid of this. In principle, the love feast is a good thing, but we can, we can bend anything out of shape, and I think that's what happens here. And so you look at the history of, of the church, and I'm embarrassed. The people are impoverished, and the leaders are walking around like this and living in these kinds of houses. We can have all kinds of theological, uh, theological reasons for doing that. And so you have to ask, am, am I saying we should go back to here? I am not saying we should go back here. We'll talk about implications of this yet. Um, but we have all sorts of these things, Pope Francis. In Anglicanism, it's a little different. I mentioned yesterday that our son goes to an Anglican church. And uh, this is different. Uh, Pastor David Short, fabulous preacher at St. John's, when he preaches, he always wears a black garment. Give us the next one. That this one underneath, above which he has a white garment. When he preaches in Sunday morning, he always wears this. But there's a profound theology very deliberately proclaimed in the clothing. There's nothing ostentatious about this. And when, when the service is over, he's dressed in ordinary garb. But he's sending a message. Look, this is a picture of what we have through the work of Christ. I am dressed in black. I am a sinner. But God in his mercy has put white robes on me. This is the grace that's embodied in Christ. I can understand this. That sends a signal. It sends a theological message. You see, nothing about us is actually secular. If we claim the name of Christ, the, the second command says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What does that mean? That's not about profanity. It's about wearing the name. The assumption is in the ancient world, you are branded with the name of your owner. At baptism, we are branded with the name of Christ. Branded into the name. That kind of expression, we have that. At <laughs> baptism, we are branded. That means that after that, everywhere we go, we advertise the name of the person that we wear. 
We belong to him. We represent him. We are out on mission for him. Nothing is profane. Everything is holy. And so, how I live bearing the name says something. So, how I live in front of you, presuming to speak for God, sends a signal. Well, here's uh, one more. In my thinking, this is one thing we don't want to do. I'm sorry. There's a problem here. That is not a spiritual vestment. It's an educational one. It's the robe you wear at a graduation ceremony by which you declare, see how educated I am and which institution I went to. I mean, I've got a spectacular cardinal robe from University of Liverpool. And so when we're doing our processions at every graduation, I stand out like a sore thumb. Who's this cardinal out there? I mean, it's, I would never wear that in a worship service because it's totally distracting. This is a reminder to the people, look at me. I know what I'm talking about. I'm educated. Come on. To me, it's a wrong signal wearing an educational garb for when you're doing spiritual ministry. There are places for this, but I don't, think, I don't think a worship service. But here's the other side of this coin. I've got a bunch of Willow Creek a couple of years ago. They sent out a, and you could get it downloaded from your computer, Willow Creek's manual on how worship leaders should dress. Okay, let's read this. This is the, the, the contrast between the garb of Israel's priests and that of many contemporary worship leaders could scarcely be more stark. Whereas every detail, whereas every detail of the high priest's clothing screamed theology, the clothing style of we worship leaders is frequently intentionally mundane, contributing to the notion that worship is a come and go, come as you are event for worshipers. If efforts are made to dress up, the aim is often deliberately to dress well by the world's standards. And here's a commentary on that. The following excerpt from the Willow Creek Memo on dress guidelines. The clothing style we are seeking is urban, outfitters meets anthropology. Think of adjectives like hipster, festive, wintry, urban, layered, textured, or chic when choosing your outfit. Something extra special and extraordinary, definitely not everyday wear. And I ask myself, which planet are you on? Remember before we said, we don't get our cues on worship, either from our own minds or from the world. What happens in worship is a totally counter-cultural event. 
This is not the place to let the world know how well-dressed I can be. No, it doesn't mean that we dress shabbily. But what's driving this is so mundane. It's a problem. I'm not saying there's, any, there's anything necessarily wrong with what, but it is driven by all the wrong values. You see, the purpose of, of the function of leaders well, there's one more here. From the remainder of the memo, it's evident that those who set the standards are more concerned with how the garb will be picked up by video cameras than with communicating anything of spiritual or theological significance. Everything we do up here sends a signal. And we need to be asking ourselves, what kind of signal are we sending? I'm not saying we should be dressed up in robes and all the rest of that stuff. I am saying we need to be very sensitive that if true worship involves reverential acts of homage and submission before the divine sovereign in response to his revelation and in accordance with his will, what's our task? Promote reverence and awe and open the windows of heaven for a divine revelation. That's it. That affects everything. I am, when I stand in front of people, I am very conscious of how I dress. Because on the one hand, I represent God and I'm his mouthpiece. On the other hand, I'm not from another planet. You know, so that, that's, that's the tension then. Do you dress so, like a cardinal? and live in a world of crows? Or you dress like a crow? That I don't have an answer for some of these things. All I'm saying that those of us who lead others in worship, I mean, when, when I teach a Sunday school class at college church, I mean, Wheaton College is in a cultural setting where, well, it is, in terms, as, as, as a county, it is the richest county in Illinois. And Wheaton's at the heart of that, you know. So you know what kind of people you're working with here. So that when I teach the Sunday school class, I'm very aware of how I dress. Out of respect for the people, these are business people, work downtown in the big high-rise offices and whatever. They know what's appropriate in appropriate situations. So on the one hand, you've got to work with that. But on the other hand, you can't be so ostentatious that, no, I mean, look at what, what a fine dresser I am. That's not the point. We can underdress and we can overdress. And so getting out of the way. I never want people, when I'm done, to go home and talk about what I was wearing unless I've been asked, charged to proclaim a theological point with my message. And then that becomes another issue. The Bible knows all kinds of leaders in worship. We've got bad leaders. Micah, in uh, Judges chapter 18, <clears throat> first of all, he steals his mother's silver and gold, and, and then she pronounces a 
curse on the guy who stole it, and then he fesses up, and she says, bless you by the Lord. <laughs> bless you by the Lord. Now, will you go and make an idol for us in the house? And they make a household idol. And Micah ordains his own son as priest. And then a Levite happens to come by. And this Levite hasn't a clue about what he's supposed to be doing in life. The text says twice, he's going wherever he might find. He's a laid-back Levite. Doesn't say what he'll find. Find a job, find somebody who'll take him in, somebody will give him something to do. Well, he comes to, he happens to come to Micah's house, and, and Micah says, oh, here's a Levite. His conscience has been bothering him because he has ordained one of his own boys as household priest. At the end of that chapter 17, he says, Now I know the Lord will bless me, seeing I have a Levite as my priest. And this Levite sanctifies everything. He accepts the job. It's nice work, working conditions, nice salary. He's got his vestments, everything. He's got a significant job. He's a leader in worship. And he's affirming all the pagan stuff that Micah's doing. What should he be doing? He should be teaching Torah. He, he should be saying, uh, asking, what's this image here? Torah has very serious words about people who do this kind of stuff. And then the Danites come by. They're looking for a home. And they happen to come to this place where Micah and the Levite are. And they just... There was one thing missing on that Danite search for land. They didn't have the blessing of God. And they come across this Levite here in the hill country, and they ask the Levite, will you bless us? And the Levite blesses them. And later they come by and they say, no, don't only bless us. Come, be our priest. And remember their Madison Avenue pull. Which is better? to be the priest of a household or to be the priest of a tribe. I mean, that's seductive. And what does the Levitical priest do? Fine, he goes with the Danites. Who wouldn't? We would. That text could be humorous, except it is such a mirror of where we are. Have you ever noticed what we do with our pastoral search committees? Whether it's for the senior pastor or a musician, whatever, we go and we look for an up-and-coming uh, younger person who's uh, in a small country church, and we say, look, which is better, to be the pastor of a little country church or to come to the city? And we seduce them with all kinds of Canaanite enticements instead of the call of God. It's a problem. It's a problem. So, we, we have ways. There are bad leaders. There are other bad leaders. Jeroboam and his calves. He, he was a religious man, but he set up his own religion with his own... Uh, services, one at Bethel and one at Dan. Here is, these are the remains of the Tel Dan altar, a massive installation where the people went to worship, and the remains are still there. Some of you have been there, and you've seen that. Well, 
leaders in worship. We can, we can lead the people for good or for ill. It's always a sobering thought. A few summary statements. Well, let's go to Malachi and read a text from Malachi, the absence of godly leaders in the post-exilic community. Here's what Malachi says. Listen, you priests, this command is for you. Listen to me. Make your minds, make up your minds to honor my name, says the Lord of heaven's armies, Yahweh Tsevaoth, or I will bring a terrible curse on you. I will curse every, even the blessings you receive. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you have not taken my warning to heart. I will punish your descendants and splatter your faces with a manure from your festival sacrifices. That's what it says. And I will throw you on the manure pile. It's a graphic translation, but it's equivalent effect. Then at last you will know that it was I who sent you this warning so that my covenant with the Levites may continue, says the Lord Yahweh of oath. The purpose of my covenant was with, with the Levites was to bring life and peace. That's what I gave them, the ministry of life and peace. This required reverence from them, and they greatly revered me and stood in awe of my name. They passed on to the people the truth of the instructions they received from me. They didn't lie or cheat. They walked with me, living good and righteous lives, and they turned many from lives of sin. The words of the priest's lips should preserve knowledge of God and people should go to him for instruction for the priest is the messenger of the Lord of heaven's armies. But you priests have left God's paths. Your instructions have caused many to stumble into sin. You have corrupted the covenant I made with the Levites, says the Lord of hosts. So I have made you despised and humiliated in the eyes of all the people for you have not obeyed me but have shown favoritism in the way you carry out your instructions." I mean, if that isn't the commentary, why is it that today, if you do polls of the people, where would you go for counsel that you could trust? You know where ministers are on that? They're way, way down. Because every time you turn around, there's another minister's fallen. Or another minister has been seduced by the trappings of power and glory. And thy kingdom come quickly translates or morphs into my kingdom come. And it's all about the pastor. It's all about the church leader. It's all about us. And whatever our leadership role is, whether it's pastor or whether it's a teaching a Sunday school class, we, we, we're in the same temptation. I mean, I teach at Wheaton College. It's easy for me to think that my students exist for me. They're there to make me look good. No, they're not. I am their servant. They're not mine. I am put in that position for their well-being. They're not there for my well-being. This is the biblical model of leadership. It is never about the leader, ever. It is always about the people led. This is true at home. The household structure is not about the father. It's not in the Unfortunately, many of the narratives of the Old Testament, they're about abusive fathers and abusive husbands because they got it all wrong. No. Jesus says, not Jesus, Paul says in Ephesians 5. I read the New Testament. 
Be, submit yourselves to one another. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands, for this is right. Husbands, love your wives. Which is harder, submitting or loving? Well, notice his commentary, what love means. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And what? Gave himself for her. That's the model. It's never about us. Never. The one who stands on this pedestal. And we do that. We do that to leaders. We feed the monster. We shouldn't. I mean, when I preach in a church a service, I hate standing at the back and shaking people's hands because they feel obligated to say, that was a good sermon. My brothers and sisters, I don't need to hear that. I have enough trouble with pride. I don't. Those strokes, I am pagan enough in my heart to listen to that. And it feeds that egotistical monster in me. It's very easy to do that. And sometimes we lay people don't realize what we're doing to people. It's one thing to encourage. But we don't need flattery. And so that, 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 that's always a tension. Leaders. Ezra, if there's one verse that's been a model for my life, this is it. Ezra 7, 10. Ezra set his heart to study the Torah, to apply it, and to teach it. That's what I want to be doing. That's what God in his mercy given, has given me such joy all my life. Who else gets paid to have fun? I mean, I don't understand people who hate their work. But there are lots of people who hate what they do. We would do anything to do something else. As it happens, I love what I do. God knew that I couldn't handle the stress of work I hated. So, you know, so, so I have trouble that. But on the other hand, this is a scary and awesome charge. Those of us who lead, remember Ezekiel? After that magnificent vision at the front end, you've got the watchman text. Son of man, I have made you a watchman. That text is not for the people. If I give you a word for the people about my imminent judgment and you do not warn them to get away from me, I think that's how you need to interpret it, and they perish, your blood is on their hands. Their blood is on your hands. You're responsible. On the other hand, if you hear a word from me and you warn them and they refuse to listen, ah, they will be 
go to their judgment, but you will have rescued yourself. The interesting thing about that whole Ezekiel thing is that God tells Ezekiel in advance, if I wanted you to have lots of fruit for your labor, I'd make a foreign missionary out of you. But I am sending you to your own people who are as hard of heart and as hard of forehead as anybody can imagine. My only help for you is I'll make your forehead harder than theirs. God never promises Ezekiel fruit. And as you read the book of Ezekiel, I get, I feel so badly. He loses. Jeremiah had a friend. He had Baruch, and he had Sariah, and he had this Ethiopian who came and rescued him. He had a few friends. Ezekiel had no friends, and in the end, the Lord took his wife away as a part of the message. The medium is the message, Marshall McLuhan. Ezekiel, embody the message. It's not fair. I feel so sorry for Ezekiel. But it does remind me that God doesn't call us to success. God calls us to faithfulness. And the primary person we represent is Him. We are His agent to the people. So that faithfulness to Him is far more important than getting the strokes from the people. Let's go to the early church. It, it's interesting, when you look into the New Testament and look, who leads worship services? <laughs> you don't even know what kind of worship services they had. And so you can go down the long list of people who lead in worship. Apostles, deacons, prophets, elders, bishops, overseers, whatever, pastors, servants of Christ, that is the doulos Christu. You've got lots of worship leaders, but half of these are not leading worship services. They're just being godly people out there doing God's business. That's leading in worship. Some of us are engineers. Some of us are, I know there's at least one electrician here. We, we, we do all kinds of stuff. That's worship. What we do for God. And some of these. Yes, they are leaders in special spiritual ministries as well, but what did they do? How did they promote leadership? We don't actually, I mean, how did they promote worship? We don't actually know. Our time is almost gone. I'm going to just conclude with a few summary statements. What do we learn from the Scriptures about leadership in worship? I have here, um, I'm using the word worship in a, in its broadest sense, not just about in church. First, leadership offices tend to evolve over time and in some instances have an ad hoc quality. It's hard to tell from the Bible exactly what kind of church structure we should have. In some places they did this, in some places they did that. So, so I'm not sure that there is one biblical model. There's a time when Israel had no king. All of a sudden they have a king. Is that the will of God? Apparently David was the one whom God had chosen from the beginning, so they have a king. You change the constitution. I think God is very flexible. 
That the, the way it's structured can vary from one to another. Second, many leadership offices were deemed to be filled by divine choice. In the New Testament, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to set apart Paul and Barnabas. So you've got the divine election of leaders. Third, leadership involves primarily the exercise of responsibility, not power. This is where we get it so wrong. That's Canaanite. I'm the strong man, influential man. No, 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 no. Leaders don't lord it over people. They carry people. If this is an over-under thing, we're under. The people are our charge. That's the load God has asked us to carry in his name. Four, the primary role of leaders is to embody righteousness and promote justice in the community. It's not to be a good preacher. It's not to be a good musician. I'm not saying we should be sh shabby or shoddy about all of that business, but that's not your first task. Your first task is be before you do. Because without the being, there's no integrity with what we do anyhow. Five, in a patrocentric world of the Old and New Testament, women were generally excluded from public leadership and liturgical offices. I, I'm sorry I have to say that, but that's the fact. It doesn't go down well these days. But this is the biblical pattern. Now, what implications does that? I find it curious that God doesn't hesitate one bit to call women as prophets. You know, so you've got Hannah, whom the Targum calls a prophet. That 1 Samuel 2, her prayer, that is an oracle as prophetic as anything you'll find. And you've got Huldah, and you've got Deborah, and you've got Miriam. They're all called prophets, and in the New Testament, Mary. Mary's response to the Annunciation is as prophetic as anything. No 16-year-old girl naturally speaks that way. That is divinely inspired prophecy. You know, so there's no hesitation about using, calling women to prophetic ministry. The interesting thing, there are no female elders. There are no female judges. Deborah's a prophet in, in that text. Barak is the judge. Read Hebrews. Uh, you know, so uh, this, this, it's a patrocentric world. And now, what the modern church does with this is another thing, but this is a, an observation. Six, regardless of the person's office, and see, this is the problem in a lot of debates, should women lead? It's about power. Why don't women have access to the positions of power like men? You recognize now how Canaanite that kind of argument is. It's not about power. It's about service. It's about carrying, not lording. Regardless of the person's office, in the New Testament, leadership and worship rarely, if ever, involved primarily leading his service. Instead, it involved practical ministry, teaching, encouraging the saints, guarding the flock, caring for the needy. Seven, assuming the broad definition of worship above, all believers are called to be worship leaders, embodying righteousness and encouraging others in the We're all leaders. God has called us all to Christ-like we all have our little corner of the world where we lead and where we learn to say not only do as I say, but do as I do. Walk with me. 
for two reasons. One, that you may learn from me, but two, that you may correct, correct me when I go wrong. We need each other. Leaders need each other as well as accountability groups. Eight, if true worship involves reverential human acts of submission and homage before the Lord in response to his gracious revelation of himself and his will, then promoting awe and reverence before God must be a primary goal when we lead people in worship. That doesn't mean, again, there's no place for humor in worship. God laughs. But there's no place for flippancy. And there's no place for trivializing the sanctity and the gravitas of the moment. So whether I'm leading in prayer, have you ever noticed? Have you studied the prayers of Scripture? The prayers in the narratives, Samson, Jacob, whoever, that arise out of everyday experience are very spontaneous and not very formal. But when people pray before the congregation on behalf of the congregation, it's very formal. Which is why when I am asked to give an invocational prayer at a public service, I always write it out. Because I'm not speaking my own private thoughts. I'm speaking on behalf of the community, and when I pray on behalf of the community in the presence of God, the register of diction rises. This is a meeting with God. We want to lift everybody up. It's not dumbing everything down. This is a sacred moment, and so we try and help people even in that way. How may this goal be uh, uh, achieved? Some counsel, some of this is totally idiosyncratic. Worship leaders must first offer their entire person as a sacrifice to God and maintain a purity of life worthy of acceptance with God. This is for any leader, whether you're the leader of a Sunday school class or you're minister of music or, or you're a youth leader. This is true of everybody. Two, worship leaders must conduct themselves before God in the company of the saints in keeping with the glory and majesty of the one they serve. Worship leaders' conduct, their performance as duties, and their entire bearing as representatives of God must enhance worshipers' awe and reverence. It's not to bring God down to where we are. It's to bring people up to where God is. Worship leaders must, above all, aim to ensure that divine revelation is transmitted to worshipers, whether through reading, expounding scripture, musical performance, other cultic acts. Leaders must ensure that everything in the service contributes to the clear, unequivocal, truthful communication of divine truth. And it's about learning to get out of the way so that God's voice is heard, not my idiosyncratic presentation. Worship leaders must make every effort to deflect attention away from themselves, whether through dress or public demeanor, drawing attention to those leading in worship borders on idolatry. Worship leaders must promote the engagement of the community, the congregation, in communal worship. People should instruct and exhort one another, sing to one another, intercede on behalf of one another. The role of worship leaders is to develop this kind of community and promote the genuine participation of all believers in corporate expressions. I'll never forget, I grew up uh, in a small church, rural church in Saskatchewan, Sunday morning service. It always had its liturgy. We always had opening hymns.
him, and then somebody would be chosen to read a scripture and lead in prayer, and we had congregational prayer. Everybody would stand, and people would pray from all over the place, and I'll never forget some of the prayers. My best friend's mother prayed for him because he was not walking with the Lord, and publicly she wept over her son. We need to see that. Every week there were half a dozen people who would stand and pray for something. And it's good to hear other people praying for our missionaries, not just a professional. We need to encourage the development of communication all around. And we need to be opening doors to ways of ministering to each other, not slamming them shut by saying, nobody else can do it right, so I'm going to do it myself. It's not helpful. If nobody else can do it right, well, then help them. Who do you think you are? It's not a monopoly. Our job here is to see to it that, we're in, that we are dispensable and that when we leave, the work goes on. Worship leaders must identify with the worshipers not only in leading them and confessing and praising God but for, or His forgiveness, but also by walking with them through the week and feeling their pains and joys. Yea, though I walk through the valley of deepest darkness, I fear no evil. That's not in a worship service. That's life. What's the point in being a professional up here on Sunday morning if in the life, in, in the middle of the rest of the week, you don't give a rip about anybody? No, 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 no. One more illustration, then we're done. My brother, I'm number nine of 15 children. He's probably number five. He lost his wife in a car accident. Northern British Columbia, Kitimat, a drunk driver, leaving him with three little kids. Uh, horrible. It was horrible. It was the week our daughter was born, and so we couldn't even go to the funeral. That made it worse for us. But after that happened, my dad, who was a minister, and they were all bivocational in our traditional, in our tradition at the time, he was a farmer and a minister, which meant if there are troubles in the church, he can't run away. In any case, when Henry's wife was killed, Lorena, my parents flew out. Ten years later, I asked my brother, when Dad got off the plane, what did he say? And my brother Henry said, I'll never forget what he says. He gets off the plane and he says, Henry, I've never lost my wife. I don't know what you're feeling. And I don't know what to say, except I'm here. And isn't that it? We sometimes think the leader has to be there with every answer. No. The leader sometimes is the answer. God present, incarnationally, as we walk through those deep valleys. 
Yea, though I walk through the valley of deepest darkness. Peter says, shepherd the flock like God shepherds his people. That's it. Walking with them through the deep valleys. May God help us all to be that kind of leader, whether it's at the home or in the class or whatever. We all have our places, whether it's at work. Being godly, not sounding godly. It's a difference. God bless you.